Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1340, entitled Comedy Capers. Our podcast title is Two Peas in a Thunderpod. I'm Rob Chan and co-host Megan McHugh is off gallivanting today. Not because she actually is, but because I've just always wanted to say that about someone in an entirely inaccurate but decisively whimsical context. (laughs) Good on you, Megan. Now, we played that track at the start of the show, which was called Apollo 11, and it stems from the Matt Smith era of Doctor Who, uh, The Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon, the episodes in question. And we played that to mark the death of Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins. More on that later on in Zero G today. But first I'd like to look at a movie and this one comes from Netflix. After a century or so of large and small screen and cross-media caped crusading, the superhero genre is well and truly established, I should think. As with the modern zombie film, for example, it's more than capable of encompassing all manner of other genres, in particular comedy and self-satire. It's a rare Marvel movie or TV series, for example, that doesn't have a healthy sense of humour about itself, and the costumed exploits of its heroes and villains, and the funnier extremes of the breed even lean into the laughs, along the lines of... um, James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy, or Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok, and of course Tim Miller's Deadpool. Well, some stand more or less alone superhero funfests romp through movies like the 1981 Michael Crawford vehicle Condor Man, or Kinka Usher's 1999 comic book derived The Mystery Man. And of course we have to mention Matthew Vaughan's 2010 Kick-Ass! with Nicolas Cage indulgently playing a Batman-like vigilante, mentoring an absolutely lethal little girl. Will Smith's Hancock, the one about the drunken superhero, comes to mind, and my super ex-girlfriend with the eponymous Uma Thurman playing the role. The Incredibles. Now, those are animated movies that have been knowingly billed as the Fantastic Four movies that we would have liked to have seen. (laughs) And then there's the Lego Batman movie, and, well, as I've said before, of all the Dark Knight-related movies, this is my most favourite one. (laughs) Ah, so much darkness. Then there's the South Park Boys' naughty take on superheroics, Orgasmo. And I could offer you as well the 1983 Aussie superhero musical comedy, The Return of Captain Invincible. And then there's James Gunn again with his gritty films specials and Super. Takeshi Mike's outrageously zany Yataman springs to mind over a tall building. Of course, no survey 
of satirical superhero movies would be complete without mention of Alejandro G. Inaritu's coolly sophisticated Birdman, amongst others. The jury's still out on whether or not the 1966 American science fiction comedy superhero film, The Wild World of Batwoman, produced, written, directed and edited by Jerry Warren, is funnier by intent, all because of its awful, yeah, nah, maybe, so bad, it's a goodness. <laughs> well, as for television, there have been more live-action and comedy superhero send-ups, and there's really time to list. From the gloriously camped-up 1960s Adam West, Burt Ward, Batman series, to the British slacker comedy Misfits, then there's the classic 80s hit, The Greatest American Hero, and the British spoof My Hero, with its Thermo Man character, and that blackest of macabre comedies, The Boys. Well, there's an endless lineup of comedic cape animated series like the pioneering Mighty Mouse, Batfink, Super Chicken, Roger Ramjet, Underdog, The Tick, Space Ghost from Coast to Coast, and there's even a take on reality TV, Big Brother Houses, called Drawn Together. It's a genre that well knows how to take the mickey out of itself, if not the mouse, given Disney's dominance of the genre. And now, in the words of Yoda, there is another, Thunder Force, which has just dropped as a Netflix original. It's written and directed by Ben Falcone, the US-American actor, comedian and filmmaker, who produced the puppet comedy The Happy Time Murders and was the director of the 2020 AI comedy Super Intelligence. Now, the last is one of several movies that Falcone has worked on that starred his wife, Melissa McCarthy, along with 2014's Tammy, The Boss, and Life of the Party, and this new film, Thunder Force. Now, he and Melissa McCarthy also play actors within a play in the movie Thor, Love and Thunder, and I think Melissa's actually playing Hella. Alrighty, the plot of Thunder Force. Well, back in 1983, the Earth was bombarded by the ever-convenient superhero tropic cosmic rays. <laughs> and the planet spawned a number of super-powered beings that, who then cheerfully turned to a life of meta-human crime. Well, as I guess you would. Collectively, these miscreants are known as Miscreants. <laughs> now, as they write in the comic books, meanwhile, two schoolgirls nearly mess up their chances to be best friends forever after the seriously studious Emily finds herself let down one too many times by her rambunctious mate, Lydia. Fear not, the two have a destiny to be reunited as adults. And I do actually pause to consider that the school in question in the film, has clearly labelled miscreant shelters in case there's an incident. And I'm wondering, is that a metaphor for school shootings? It could very well be. Now, Emily, driven by her family's death in a supervillain-related incident, well, she has to excel in her field of enhanced genetic engineering. So she becomes the brains behind a kind of super soldier serum, which, as you'll know from the trailer for Thunder Force, 
inevitably gets injected into her former pal's veins when she hooks up with her again in contemporary times. So far, so simple. And so I'd like to open things up with a track from The Greatest American Hero, which we mentioned before. It was a three-season American superhero sitcom, and it ran from 1981 to 1983, with producer Stephen J. Cannell at the helm, and also it involves the talents of William Catt, playing the teacher Ralph Hinckley, Robert Culp as an FBI agent, and Connie Salaka playing a lawyer. Now, the theme song of this was famously composed by Mike Post, with lyrics by Stephen Geyer and sung by Joey Scarberry. And this was an incredible hit at the time. And why not? Because it's by Mike Post, who gave us the memorable theme songs for shows like The Rockford Files, Law and Order, Quantum Leap, Magnum P.I. and Hill Street Blues, and came back to do a bit of superheroing himself, doing the fake period TV pilot Caged Heat, which appeared in All Hail the King, the short that they did for Marvel movies that riffed off the (laughs) Further Adventures of the Mandarin, which is to say (laughs) Mr. Slattery, played by Ben Kingsley when he was in jail. So off we go into the skies, rather wobbly with the greatest American hero, because, of course, the teacher, Ralph Hinckley, who got the superhero suit from a bunch of aliens in the Greatest American Hero series, well, he promptly lost the <laughs> the instruction manual to the thing and thereafter had nothing but hilarious problems. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Composer Mike Post there with the theme song from the 80s superhero sitcom The Greatest American Hero. Rob Jan here talking about the new Netflix superhero comedy movie Thunder Force, which is directed by Ben Falcone. Well, I certainly can't fault the casting for this movie. Actress, comedian, writer, producer and plus-size fashion designer... Yes, all of those things. She's a Renaissance woman. Melissa McCarthy plays Lydia Berman, also known as The Hammer. And kudos to Vivian Falcone playing young Lydia Berman, as well as Mia Kaplan playing the teenage Lydia. <laughs> Tee I was thinking when I was watching the kid playing young Lydia that, gosh, she looks like Melissa McCarthy. Well, of course, she's her daughter, so there. <laughs> now, The kind of buddy cop film that Melissa McCarthy did with Sandra Bullock back in 2013, The Heat, is of course what we're talking about with Thunder Force. And we'll get onto that in a moment. Now, McCarthy played the character in the female-headlined Paul Feig Ghostbusters reboot in 2016 as well. And I actually think she did a pretty good job of that, whatever you think of the film overall. And I'd also like to mention that she played the voice of the character Dean Amy in episodes of the animated superhero comedy, Kim Possible. 
and of course co-starred with Ryan Reynolds in the 2007 science fantasy psychological thriller The Nines. Oh, and there's the Paul Feig spy-fi movie Spy from 2016, where McCarthy plays the lead secret agent. In Thunder Force, she had a ball playing the empowered forklift driver who gets the new superpower serum. And the procedural is actually pretty good in this movie. There's lots of training montages, um, lots of play with the special, entirely repulsive diet that she has to endure when she becomes a superhero. And this contrasts quite heavily with Emily's experiences, who also gets into the empowerment system. And in fact, I think the interplay between Emily and Lydia is the strongest element of the film, and it jolly well ought to be in this kind of team-up movie. Octavia Spencer, American actress, author and producer, plays the character of Emily, well, grown up. Uh, You may know that um, Spencer is also a children's author who's created the book series Randy Rhodes, Ninja Detective. (laughs) Now, she plays Emily in this and she's backed up by Bria Danielle and Tay Lashan playing a young M and the teenage version of the character as well. We saw Octavia Spencer as the mathematician Dorothy Vaughan in Hidden Figures back in 2016, where she's playing a mathematician working for NASA, helping to loft the space program out of 1960s racism and bigotry not to mention a good deal of sexism. She plays a cleaning woman in the fantasy movie The Shape of Water in 2017, and she was also in the Snowpiercer movie in 2013. And she played a fairly pivotal role in the Divergent movies. So from teen dystopia to zombies Halloween 2, we then saw her opposite Anne Hathaway in the Roger Zemeckis comedy The Witches, which is based upon that Roald Dahl story, and not the 1967 Dino De Laurentiis anthology movie. She had a small role in Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider-Man, as well as Raimi's Drag Me to Hell horror movie. And she was also in the psych thriller The Nines, and is slated to appear in the British science fiction film Invasion. You've probably seen her in the Apple TV Plus drama series Truth Be Told as well. And she makes a pretty good meal of her role in Thunder Force as the scientist, who I will not call a nerd because she'd be promptly corrected throughout this movie by saying she's not a nerd, she's just really smart. So, She's gone from a very unfortunate start in life in the film, where her parents are killed in a supervillain miscreate-related incident, and driven by that, she's been inspired to come up with this new superhero serum. How many times have we seen that story before? But they make that work here. Tropes are not really the problem with Thunder Force. 
And NOVA is the casting, as we've said, and the interaction, the chemistry between Emily and Lydia is first rate. It's pretty much where it should be for the film. Now, Jason Bateman plays a character called Jerry. He's an American actor, director and producer as well. We know him from the sitcom Arrested Development and the drama Ozark. And he also was in that uh, Hancock superhero film with Will Smith and Charlize Theron back in 2008. Jason Bateman playing the role of Jerry has this gentle, almost soft-spoken, convincing line of self-deprecating and rather bemusing patter. He's a miscreant. Does he have powers? I'm not actually sure at the end of the day whether he has any, apart from some really odd ones, but he's actually one of the best things in the film. And I do mean things. He's, um, I tell you what, I won't spoil his particular miscreant strength in this one. You can see it for yourself. Full marks to Jason Bateman, because I really did think that he was one of the highlights of the film for me. Bobby Cannavale plays William Stevens, a Chicago politician who's got aspirations to become mayor of the Windy City. Now, he's a, a slick operator who's used to being the boss in fact, his nickname for himself is The King. And as I'm sure will surprise absolutely no one at all, he turns out to be the villain of the piece. Now, Cannavale played uh, Will Truman's police boyfriend in Will and Grace and had a role in the techno-thriller series Mr. Robot and was another police officer in the first Ant-Man movie. Uh, the character was engaged to Scott Lang's former wife, Maggie, in that one. We also saw him in Jumanji, where he played Professor Van Pelt in the reimagined franchise. It's a fairly thankless role to play William Stevens in this movie. Uh, not a million miles from other sort of awkward, a bit klutzy and uncomfortable villainous masterminds we've seen before. Hardly a novel character, but he executes his turn as well as can be expected. It reminds me a little bit of Robbie Rotten from the Icelandic children series Lazy Town. Not necessarily a bad thing. He has the requisite unpleasant presence to play the villain. And speaking of villains, another miscreant is Pom Clementif, who's playing Lazar. Now, she's the French actress and model that we know very well playing Mantis in two apiece of Guardians of the Galaxy and Avengers films. She also had a role in the remake of the Korean horror movie Old Boy in 2013, and we've seen her before reflected in the Black Mirror science fiction television series as well as Westworld, that series too. <laughs> she has a nice line in Evil in this movie. She looks knowingly great and rather wickedly meta as she stalks in and out of mayhem in the film. And she gets to ride in a, well, hardly a laser mobile or anything particularly glorious, but wait till you see it. It's just a nice little background joke how she gets into and out of battle in the film. She is a nemesis for our two Thunder Vorsians. 
<laughs> and yeah, she has a hell of a time in this movie. No problem at all with her. Really, I've enjoyed the casting of this film quite a lot. Melissa Leo is a very familiar face as she plays an assistant to the scientific establishment in this movie. We've seen her well before in a lot of things like the free burials of Meliquard's Estrada. You may remember her from the action thriller Olympus Has Fallen and also uh, in one of the sequels London Has Fallen. In Thunder Force she plays a fairly officious assistant. It doesn't have particularly much time at all for the rough-hewn Lydia. Melissa Ponzio plays Rachel Gonzalez, another Chicago politician, and we know her from The Walking Dead, where she plays Karen. Oh, and the director gets a cameo as a character called Kenny. <laughs> Well, he's got his daughter in the film, his wife, why not himself? Why not indeed? Now, there are problems with this movie. I think it plays a shade too much like a, well, like an undercooked telly movie. There are some pretty good jokes in this and some mildly amusing ones. And problem is that some of them are overemphasised whilst being rather strangely not having enough airtime given to them. That's a kind of an interesting dichotomy there. For example, the special superhero suits that the women wear, well, they can't be washed. Now, that's literally kind of a cool gag, and they should have lent into that way more than they did. Why can't they be washed? What else could they do instead of washing them to keep them sanitised? Why not use alcohol wipes to clean them out? Perhaps they could spray themselves with super deodorant before they get themselves into them. I don't know. I do wonder if um, Melissa McCarthy, who has had her own fashion line of plus-size garments, if she actually had some hand in the design of these costumes. They're actually quite funny-looking in themselves, but also pretty cool in the way that they are designed. Speaking of design, they get a, a sleek purple, very hot car to drive around in, which is just a bit too snug, and that's a, a reasonably interesting joke to play out. But I don't know, these don't feel like particularly well-hitting running gags. Uh, missed it by that much, I think. There's a fantasy romance dance sequence that, although it's quite nicely done is sort of parachuted into the film in a place that lands a little bit awkwardly. Well, you know, they do play with the concept of logos and perhaps a theme song, and they really should have gone with that one. And the special effects are, I think, fairly convincing too. And I can tell that Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer are really having a, a lot of fun with their specific superpowers in this film. I mean, who wouldn't? It's like, you know, <laughs> it's just such a hoot to be tossing buses around and going invisible and doing all the sorts of things that you would expect would happen in one of these films. Well, there are some other problems with the film, but basically that's it. It doesn't really reach out to where I think it should be. And there's, in fact, 
at times it feels a little bit like a sketch comedy with individually funny vignettes that don't really pull together. That said, I think there's a lot to be said for the aspirations of this film. It's about empowerment, not especially that of plus-size women, but there it is, and I think they acquitted themselves quite well there, and also, incidentally, with a very good representative cast. Lots of women in key roles, and always good to see that, because representation matters. Unfortunately, against that, there's a somewhat gratuitous romance that feels very sketched in and plot-driven. doesn't really gel for me in the film. Well, there's good and bad about Thunder Force. I think I didn't mind watching it, which sounds like a backhanded sort of a insult, but it's not really. I, I had an amiable enough time chuckling through it in, at occasions as I watched it. Um, you know, if you've got an hour or so to kill and you just want to watch something moderately amusing, well, Thunder Force is for you. I think it could have been a lot more than what it was, which is a great pity because I can tell that the cast really put a lot into this and it seems to me that they enjoyed themselves doing it. So more of that should have conveyed itself onto the screen than we actually see there. Is this a yeah, nah, maybe film? Well, I think it falls into the maybe category. Uh, if you're in the right mood for it, as I said before, it'll probably be okay to watch. If not, then you might just sit there criticising it to pieces, and that's no fun for anyone, really, is it? All right, Thunder Force, which has dropped on Netflix. Now, I think to riff off of that, I'd like to play a track from Thunder Force itself, the soundtrack. And it's, uh, it's got a pretty workmanlike soundtrack to it, as well as some songs and stuff. <laughs> and this particular one is by Corey Taylor and Lizzie Hale and a bunch of other people. And it's from the soundtrack album. All of these have soundtrack albums now, streaming movies. And it's just called Thunder Force. To paraphrase the immortal words of Jeff Tracy, Thunder Force is go. Well, this is Annie Lee. And I'm Morn Kransky of the Kransky Sisters. And you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Lock up your meat safe and beware of the machine with the claw. There you go, Thunder Force from the soundtrack of the movie, just dropped on Nettie, and that track displayed the talents of Corey Taylor, Lizzie Hale, Scott Ian, Dave Lombardo, Phil Eisler and Tina Guar. Now, sad to report on the death of US American astronaut, author and artist, US Air Force Major General Michael Collins. Collins was born on October the 31st in 1930 in Rome, Italy, and died on April the 28th this year in Naples. No, not in Italy, but in Florida at the age of 90. Yes, he was an army brat and was raised partly on all of the military bases that his father was stationed at. Now, 
Collins graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1952 and was motivated to join the Air Force, which in part, according to him, was because he didn't want accusations of nepotism because his father and other relatives were already in the army in quite high positions in some cases. So he flew F-86 Sabre fighters in France for a while and then was accepted into the U.S. Air Force Experimental Flight Test Pilot School over at Edwards Air Force Base back in the States in 1960. So when he was selected for the NASA astronaut intake in 63, he got up into space on Gemini 10 in 1966. Astrologically, as opposed to astronautically speaking, Gemini meant the twins, and so there were two astronauts in those particular vehicles. And Collins and command pilot John Young, who later went on to feature in the Space Shuttle program, they performed an orbital rendezvous with a couple of different spacecraft and did EVAs, extravehicular activities, spacewalks. So, actually, Mike Collins became the first person to perform two spacewalks in the same mission. Later on, he became a capsule communicator on the Apollo 8 mission, and like all of the astronauts, he participated fully in the practical research and development of the missions and the creation of procedures and the correction of procedures too, very important work. And his specialty was pressure suits and extravehicular activities. So he also had to act as a liaison between NASA's astronaut office and all of the contractors assembling this magnificently complicated mechanism that was the Apollo space program. All right, obviously he had a fairly spectacular mission in his future, And before we go to that, I'm going to play a track by Jeffro Tull, the English prog rock group, who did an album called Benefit back in 1970. And there's a song in it called For Michael Collins, Jeffrey and Me. So they're dealing in this with some feelings about being a misfit on behalf of uh, the vocalist Ian Anderson and also thinking about the idea of the astronaut Michael Collins in the Apollo 11 spacecraft sitting in the command module while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin actually went down and landed and walked upon the moon's surface. I actually think kind of they make too much of that in history. The telescope of history gives us this easy grab saying, oh, poor Mike Collins, he was left up in the ship while the other two guys got all the glory. But, you know, he was an astronaut. He was part of a mission. That was his job. And I actually think that he was probably okay with that, judging from what I'd read. Yeah, he would have liked to have done that, but he didn't. This was the job. This was the mission. But nevertheless, this is still a pretty good song. For Michael Collins, Jeffrey and Me by Jeff Rotale from their album Benefit from 1970. Hi, I'm Steve Squires. I worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers, Voyager, Magellan, and Cassini space missions, and I wrote the book Roving Mars. So if anyone should understand Zero-G, think it would be me. Nah, sorry. Zero-G, science fiction and fantasy radio on 3 FM. Okay, Rob Jan here 
with the Jeffro Tull song for Michael Collins, Jeffrey and Me from their Benefit album in 1970. A bit of a tribute there to astronaut Michael Collins who has passed away recently. Now, we're doing a bit of an in-memoriam section here on Zero G for Mike and, you know, one of the quotes that he came out with was, I really believe that if the political leaders of the world could see their planet from a distance of, let's say, 100,000 miles, their outlook would be fundamentally changed. The all-important border would be invisible, that noisy argument suddenly silenced. Now, Michael Collins was also a bit of an artist, which is manifest in his many watercolour paintings, not all of which have much to do with spaceflight, oddly enough but he also designed the mission patch for Apollo 11, which has become a bit of an icon itself with its olive branch and lunar background and um, American eagle flying above it. He also approved the call sign of Columbia for the command service module for the Apollo 11 mission. Uh, At least he couldn't think of anything better than that. And, you know, it's got its Jules Verne, link and its American nationalism aspect, so, you know, all good from his point of view. So, on the 1969 Apollo 11 mission, he was one of 24 astronauts to fly to the moon so far, and went around it about 30 times in orbit. The details of the historic Apollo 11 moon landing are far too well documented for me to go into here and along with his crewmates Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, they made history. Now, later on, afterwards, they offered Collins the opportunity to actually land on the moon. Uh, This was as part of the evolution of various flights, asking him if he wanted to be backup commander for Apollo 14 and to become commander of Apollo 17. But Collins just said, well, you know, if the Apollo 11 flight's successful, and it was, I don't really want to go back up there. It's pretty hard grind for the family. So you've got to respect that in a lot of ways. So I think they emphasise too much the fact that he didn't land upon the moon himself. Part of the mission, that was the man. He did his job. Apparently... He didn't feel particularly lonely when he was orbiting in the command service module while Neil and Buzz were on the moon. The first thing to note is that the mission was extraordinarily complicated and very busy, and he kind of felt okay with having a bit of a break at that stage. Of course, he did worry about his two crewmates down on the surface doing something that had never been done before, especially the possibility that they might not make it back, which would have been, of course, enormously tragic in its own right, and also would have marked him for the rest of his entire life. If you can imagine how that would have gone, I think you can realise that staying up in the command service module without anything going wrong was actually a pretty fair deal. So, one of the things he did while he was orbiting the moon as the most isolated man in the cosmos, at least the most isolated human being, he took a photograph of the lunar module, uh, the ascent stage as it was flying back. And the moon was in the background and above that the rising Earth. Now, 
that meant that he was the only person in the universe, again, I mean human being, who was not in that photograph because all the people who were on Earth were in the background and Neil and Buzz in the ascent stage of the lunar module were right there and only Collins wasn't in it. He really needed a selfie stick very badly. (laughs) All right, well, Michael Collins logged a total amount of 11 days, 2 hours, 4 minutes and 43 seconds in space. And after he retired, he took a job in the Department of State as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs and later became Director of the National Air and Space Museum, became an Undersecretary for the Smithsonian Institution later on and Vice President of LTV Aerospace and then went on to start his own consulting firm in the 1980s. He wrote several books, Lift Off the Story of America's Adventure in Space in 1988, Mission to Mars in 1990, uh, which was about um, the possibility of human spaceflight to Mars, Flying to the Moon and Other Strange Places, and uh, that was a children's book about his experiences. And as I was saying before, he did dabble in watercolours. <laughs> so he mostly did that about the uh, the Florida Everglades. That was his subject and about aeroplanes that he'd flown in. And sometimes, but, but a bit rarely, uh, some space-related work. And you can find pictures of those online quite handily. Michael Collins, no longer with us, but always with us when you think about it in his place in history is assured one of the things that he said was this this venture has been structured for three men and i consider my third to be as necessary as either of the other two i don't mean to deny a feeling of solitude it is there reinforced by the fact that radio contact with the earth abruptly cuts off at the instant i disappear behind the moon I am alone now, truly alone, and absolutely isolated from any known life. I am it. If a count were taken, the score would be three billion plus two over on the other side of the moon, and one plus God knows what on this side. Another song that has become inextricably entangled with the Apollo 11 mission, the entire hoopla over that fantastic journey into space is David Bowie's Space Oddity. Now, this was his second studio album. He hadn't done too well commercially with his 1967 self-titled debut album, of which we have played, I think, pretty much all of the tracks from On Zero G for that David Bowie oddity of all those early pieces. And they'd worked on a new song titled Space Oddity about a fictional astronaut, which was actually inspired by Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was the bee's knees in 1968. So this again was about a lone astronaut, Major Tom, and his mission has gone horribly wrong. He later revisited the Major Tom character in the 1980 Ashes to Ashes from Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, and again in 1995 with Hello Space Boy. And of course, it's also an influence upon the music video for Black Star in 2015, Bowie's final album. And the song got another boost, as it were, in space terms in 2013, when Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield covered it while actually orbiting the Earth. 
in the International Space Station. And so that actually became the first music video shot actually in space. <laughs> so another big rap for them. So I'm going to go with this Bowie song right now. And it's what it is. And I'd like to leave you with a quote from Michael Collins, astronaut, the famous third crewman of the Apollo 11 lunar landing mission. Collins said, It's human nature to stretch, to go, to see, to understand. Exploration is not a choice, really. It's an imperative. And this track will serve to take us out of Zero G for today. I have been Rob Jan and probably will be continuing to be that when I look once again next week on Zero G, Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio. I would like to thank Triple R FM as usual and our co-host Megan McHugh and our podcaster Kayla Larson and you can hear Kayla's podcast of Zero G episodes at rrr.org. Coming up next is Joe Brunatic with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.